Exodus 23 and verse 2, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. It takes a courageous man to stand against the crowd and the current of popular opinion. But the Bible is filled with examples of those that did. The Bible has many examples of those that did not. Tonight, 26 men are going to participate in giving you illustrations of those that stood against the crowd, that stood against temptation, that stood against pressure to compromise and would not. And they'll give you some examples of those that did compromise and the trouble and pain that it cost them. On Friday, I wrote you a proverb, Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 5. I'll read it to you. It is not good to accept the person of the wicked, to overthrow the righteous in judgment. And from that verse, I explained to you that God expects us, in all the judgments we make, to ignore personalities, to ignore relationships, to ignore benefits, or to ignore threats that we might get from any quarter. But we're to judge righteous judgment. We're not to judge by appearance. We're to judge by the Word of God. And it takes a strong man to ignore personalities, to ignore relationships, to ignore popular opinion, threats, benefits, bribes, or other advantages he might get by slightly modifying Bible judgment. Again, tonight you're going to get illustrations of men and women that wouldn't. Men and women that did, and how it cost them. Then this morning, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, tonight we're going to glorify the Father in heaven for men that have passed away 2,000, 3,000 years ago. Do you realize that? We're going to glorify the God of heaven that he had sons of God on earth that were unafraid of all the children of wrath and the children of the devil. So each of you men that are coming, and Eric's going to call your name, and you can come forward and give your, you can identify the person that you have chosen to illustrate your point. You can read to us a couple of scriptures, and then apply it to us as the Lord has led you. Please try to limit yourself to two minutes, or we're going to be here a long time. If it goes too far, I'll cut it off, and we're going to end the night. But I've asked you to do it in a couple of minutes. We don't need 26 sermonettes. We just need 26 reminders of some of the heroes of the faith that provoke our courage. Tonight, illustrations of courage and compromise. The first five. Mark Crosby, Philip Crosby, Kevin Taylor, Stephen Eastland, and Mark Grimm. Well, tonight we're going to hear about a lot of men that were great in the faith, that stood under incredible persecution or against incredible odds, and they surpassed. They overcame. They were overcomers. But before we consider some of those, I'd like to show you a man that was a righteous man. He was great. He served the Lord with all his heart, but he failed in one small area. At the age of 35, he became the king of Judah. 
he followed in the footsteps of his father, Asa. He loved the Lord, he served him well, he tore down the high places, and even killed the remnant of the Sodomites that Asa had left. Amen. So we like this guy already. But he failed in the small area of, of friendship. He let a bad relationship keep him from serving the Lord with his full heart and being one of the greatest kings of Judah. Now you guys are probably wondering who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Jehoshaphat. Amen. Now Jehoshaphat and his small area of compromise didn't really it didn't really affect him very much. It affected his children and his grandchildren. Amen. When Jehoshaphat died, his son Je- Jehoram became the king. Now Jehoram had affiliation with Ahab because that's Jehoshaphat had made an affiliation with Ahab earlier. Yes. And Jehoram had married uh, Athaliah, Ahab's daughter. And that did not help him serve the Lord at all. In fact, he followed after Ahab, and he wanted to, uh, he took and made Judah serve other gods and go a whoring, just like Ahab had done. And so, therefore, after eight years, Jehoram was killed. By, and then, after Jehoram died by a plague which the Lord sent, Ahaziah, his son, reigned for one year. And then he was killed by Jehu because he was so wicked, just like his father Jehoram. After that, Athaliah uh, became queen, and um, things got really ugly after that. But I'll stop there. Uh, So what can we learn from Jehoshaphat? Even though he was very righteous and served the Lord with all his heart for most of the time, he did uh, have great consequences to pay. We, ourselves, can serve the Lord very well, love him, talk about him all the time. But if we compromise in one small area, the Lord will not bless us how he should. Um, I'd like to talk about three men that did not compromise. I want to talk about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are men that didn't care the peer pressure. They didn't care about the people that were higher than kings and princes. They stood up for the Lord Jesus Christ, and he rewarded them. Yeah. Let me go just one verse. Let me say all the people that King Nebuchadnezzar called to worship his golden idol. This is chapter 3 and verse 2 of Daniel. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent to gather the princes, the governors, and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the province to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. These three men did not worship like everyone else did. Princes, rulers, kings. They stood up for their beliefs. And let me tell you what they said to the king in chapter uh, verse 17 and 18. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if it not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. The main point of this tonight for us is we don't face people like this. We don't face rulers and presidents. We just have our friends and maybe our boss. Can we stand up and maybe pray during our lunch break when everyone else can see us? Can we profess the name of Jesus Christ in the workplace? Can we do that when these men took a a big stand and were delivered from the fire? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mark. You helped set up mine perfectly. Um, 
I'm going to take you to 1 Kings chapter 22. And as he's already pointed out, uh, King Ahab is over Israel and Jehoshaphat is over Judah. And the man that I'm going to speak of is Micaiah. And the way that he was unpersuaded and that he stood fast amidst 400 of other prophets. Yes. Give you a, a brief introduction to what this chapter is about. Mark, like they, like he said, uh, Jehoshaphat went to King Ahab in verse four and said, "Wilt thou go to battle with me uh, against Ramoth Gilead?" And then down in verse six, Ahab gathered his prophets together and wanted to get their opinion on whether or not he should join Jehoshaphat in battle. And the main verses I want to emphasize is verse 12 through 14. I'm going to read those to you. And all the prophets prophesied, saying, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver it into the king's hand. And the messenger that was gone to call Micaiah spake unto him, saying, Behold, now the words of the prophets declare good unto the king with one mouth. Let thy word, I pray thee, be like the word of one of them, and speak that which is good. So uh, Micaiah was in prison, and this messenger went to get him. And on the way back, he said, listen, 400 of us are there. We said, go, you're going to win. We want you to just go along with us, tell the king good news, and we'll we'll put you back in there, and nothing bad will happen. Verse 14, and Micaiah said, as the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. Amen. He was already on the king's bad side. He was in jail. He he could have possibly gone with the crowd and had a better standing with the king. He could have been in a better sight with the 400 prophets. But regardless of his peers, regardless of the king, he, he said, as the Lord liveth, Amen. Uh, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. Amen. So can we, against even four or five coworkers or four or five people at school or four or five people in church, can we stand up to that little bit of peer pressure Whereas Micaiah was in front of 400 prophets that should have been standing up for the truth but weren't, and against the king. And, and those kind of odds, he prevailed. Regardless, he, he, he didn't worry about his well-being. He very well could have got his head cut off for displeasing the king and all of them. But I hope that we, in light of that, in front of just a few co-workers, uh, peers at school, wherever it may be, can stand for the truth and do that which the Lord wills. Amen. Here's the scene in Israel. God's people, the whole congregation is weeping outside the tent of the tabernacle. You have a plague that is going on that's killing millions in the land, thousands in the land. Your country is being vexed by strange women who have turned the hearts of the men away from the true and living God. The man of God has just told you what to do. Slay every man that has turned away from God, that ate the sacrifices of the dead, that has joined himself with Baal Peor. Then you see the son of a chief house of the Simeonites take a princess of Midian into his tent in front of the whole congregation. Yes. What do you do? If you're Phinehas, you pick up a javelin and you thrust through both of them, the man of Israel and the yes. woman, through her belly. Amen. I want to talk about the zeal that Phinehas had for the Lord. He had courage because he was zealous for the Lord his God. And the Lord tells us that and we're thankful for that. 
You know the history. It's in Numbers 25. And I'm going to read verses 3 through 9 real quick. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every one his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought into his, unto his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, saw this, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went in after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel, and those that died in the plague were twenty and four thousand. I like this story about Phinehas because he is zealous for his God. But I also like this because the Lord spoke to the man of God, which was Moses in this instance. And the man of God talked to the judges, the people of the land, and told them what to do. But Phinehas did something about it. The whole congregation was sitting there crying and weeping about it. And yet Phinehas saw and did something about it because he is zealous for his Lord. As I said in verse 4, you can see the Lord talking to Moses. And then the Moses talks to the judges of the land and tells them what to do. And you know, I like this. I like Phinehas' response because everybody heard those words. And yet Phinehas was the only one who did something about it, who was zealous for the Lord and executed Now, I want to take just a couple of minutes, and how does that, you know, just that incident right here, don't we hear every word? Hasn't the Lord given us a man of God who preaches to us every Sunday his words of what we should be doing? Okay? And so we believe that those words came from the Lord himself to our pastor. Right? And then we hear those same words every Sunday and Wednesday, and actually every day during the week, if you read the Proverbs, right? So are we taking those, like Phinehas, and executing and doing something? We should. Let our light so shine as Phinehas did. And how did the Lord remember Phinehas? How did the Lord remember Phinehas? I want to take out of Psalm 106, a couple of verses, 28 through 31, of what the Lord thought about this when he just gave a quick summary of, of, of this incident. Starting in verse 28, they joined themselves also unto Baal Peor and ate the sacrifices of the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their inventions and the plague break in upon them. Mm-hmm. Then stood up Phinehas and executed judgment and so the plague was stayed. And this was counted unto him for righteousness unto all generations forevermore. Amen. The Lord loved Phinehas because he took a stand for him because he was zealous for his sake. And it told us that he, he never lacked a man to stand before the Lord. And he was remembered from the Lord forevermore and his seed after him. Yes. And what did he do? He just did what the Lord told him to do. And he did it with zeal because he was zealous for his Lord. Amen. Let us have that same zeal for the Lord today. Thank you, Brother Stephen. I'm going to be in 1 Samuel 2. You set me up because I'm the opposite of that. The Lord put in my heart to tell you about Eli and his two sons. And I want to look at it from the perspective of their office and the damage that's done by not carrying out your office. First Samuel two twelve. Now the sons of Eli were the sons of Belial, 
they knew not the Lord. Wherefore, down in 17, wherefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. These vile men were working wickedness with the offerings, and they were taking and making other men hate the worship of God. That is, they had a high office. They were Levites. They were priests. And they didn't execute their office well, and they caused the people to hate the worship of God. In verse 22, Now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto the Israel, and how they laid with the women and assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he said unto them, Why do ye such things? For I hear of your evil doings by all this people. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. Yea, make the Lord's people to transgress. Eli, the high priest, he knew what was going on. He knew what should be done. He was the high priest. And all he got was a little chastening out out of these words to his sons. I, too, am very thankful for the word of God because later it will explain his position, the Lord's position in this matter. I want to skip over to verse 27 right now. And there came a man of God unto Eli and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Did I plainly appear unto the house of thy father, when there was in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? And did I choose out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? to offer upon mine altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? And did I give unto the house of my father all the offerings made by fire for the children of Israel? Wherefore, kick ye at my sacrifice and at mine offerings, which I have commanded in my habitation, and whorest thy sons above me, and honorest, I'm sorry, thy sons above me, to make yourselves fat, with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people. His sins were finding him out, weren't they? And the Lord sent someone, a prophet, to tell Eli, I know of this, and I'm not pleased. And it goes on to describe the curses that are going to come to him. Let's turn to chapter 3. I'm sorry. I lost my place. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel, at which both the ears of every one that heareth it shall tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin... I will also make an end. For I have told him, I love this part, for I have told him that I will judge the house forever and the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile and he restrained them not. I love the word of God. That explains his correction to them wasn't enough. He just tried to put them in their place with a few verbal warnings. He should have done a whole lot more if not take them out and stone them or something. They were vile and wicked. And they caused the people of God to turn from God. As a priest, 
they compromised. They compromised God and they knew it. And nothing was done. No one stood up to do it. Eli should have because he was not just a high priest. He was also a father. And he should have set an example as the leader of the congregation, but he didn't. And the whole congregation suffered for that. His whole family tree suffered for that. They all died, and it was miserable. When his one of the daughters gave birth, they named it that son. What was the name of that son? I believe it was Ichabod, which is the glory has departed. That's right. And I exhort you sons and daughters, Joshua, and I exhort you fathers not to compromise the word of God. When you know you have to do something, despite how difficult it can be at times, to do it. Otherwise, the consequences of your actions will come home to roost, as they say. Or as was preached some time ago, your sins will find you out. This is good. I'm enjoying this. I'm going to continue to enjoy this. Let's find our hymn books and turn to the next hymn that was selected. My memory is not good enough. Do you have it, Brother Jonathan? Yeah. Thank you. I'm sorry. Number 30. Number 30.
Amen. Amen. You know, what we do from day to day will be forgotten, lots of the little details, but all of us, many times in our life, and some very important times in our life, will face a crux where we are given a choice to compromise or have courage, and it will often be in front of someone else. And those times that we do show courage and bear some fruit for the Lord, those are the things that will be remembered and time will not erase. Um, the next five, I'm going to go next. Uh, let me go ahead and write my name down here, and then let's call out four more. Paul, Newell, Red, and then Daniel. If you four will go, and I'm going to jump in here. It was about this time of day or night. It was getting dark. Everybody had had supper. And this gentleman, who was a man of God, had two visitors that night who had come to stay under his roof. But the problem is the whole city was outside his front door because they wanted to take advantage of the two visitors that this man of God had in his shelter, in his house. So we had a choice to make. So he got his shotgun. He went out front front door and he said, you guys know I'm a man of God and I'm not going to stand for this wickedness. Get off my property. Is that what he said? No. No, that is not what he said. But he had the chance. He could have. He could have said, you know, I've lived before you in righteousness and holiness. This is not the sin that my God puts up with. Get out of here or my Lord will defend me and take all you to hell. That's what he should have said. But he did not. Instead, he said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Don't go quite that far. Take my two daughters instead. That's what he said. Come on, guys. The heat's on here. Come on. Don't do that. Just take my two daughters instead. That's twisted. Can you believe that? But under the heat of pressure, he compromised. And that was the first thing he could think of to get these guys off his back. It wasn't anywhere near righteousness and truth. You know, but the problem started a while before that. The problem started when he took a selfish choice that his uncle Abraham graciously gave him. And he took the plain that was more watered and greener and had better trees and lots of springs. And, oh, by the way, had a great looking city down there, Sodom and Gomorrah. And they were pretty exciting. You know, they had pretty big movie theaters down there. They had a lot of beer joints where you could go and relax in the day. And they were very prosperous. So he pitched his tents toward Sodom. And the next time we read of him, he was on their city council because he approved their doings rather than reproving them. He approved them, and they thought that he was just one of them. And they voted him in because of his popularity to be on city council. So that when that point came where he had to make a decision, he was already too late. The rest of his family laughed him to scorn and said, God is going to destroy this place? Yeah, right. Get out of my house. He was mocked and laughed at. Then, when he had the chance, and his, then the two angels tried to force him out, and he had the chance to leave, he tried to linger. His wife turned around and was turned into a pillar of salt. Yes. And then when, they, when the angel said, escape to the mountains, we're fixing to burn the place up, he argued with their solution. And he said, come on, let me just go to this city down here. It's a very little city, and they only have a little movie theater. So he argued with their solution that God was presenting. And, of course, you know the rest of the story, how his two daughters got him pregnant in the mouth of the cave and sired 
two nations who became a thorn in the flesh for Israel for many centuries. Yes. All because he compromised when he had the chance. Yes. Paul. Never in the history of the world has a man faced such insurmountable odds as Noah did. He stood alone against the entire world of his day. A world, let me remind you, of Genesis chapter 6, that was filled with violence. God saw in that day that men were wicked, wickedness was everywhere, that every thought of the imagination of men's hearts was only evil continually. That was the day in which Noah lived. Now notice that Noah was different than all these people. Noah was different than his generation entirely. He was a just man, a righteous man. Noah was perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. Noah lined up perfectly with everything God wanted him to do, and he walked with God. What two men is that said about in the Bible? Enoch, his great-grandfather, and Noah. He walked with God. He was righteous and perfect. But not only did he have perfect righteousness for himself, not only did he walk with the Lord in his personal walk, he was a preacher of righteousness as well. The Bible tells us that for 120 years, while the ark was a building, and while the long-suffering of God waited, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He let his light so shine before men to tell them that judgment was coming, and they better change their ways or else. Noah also was faithful in executing all that God wanted him to do. It tells us in Genesis chapter 6 that in building the ark, saving his house, and saving all the animals, he did what God asked him to do perfectly. He did all that God wanted him to do. So we see here, in the face of a wicked generation, he was the only man that stood for righteousness. Now, when he was a preacher, we don't know that he converted anyone in 120 years of preaching. We don't know that he converted even his own family. But you know what? Noah didn't care. He did what God wanted him to do despite the odds and despite the lack of fruit from his own preaching. The Lord commends him greatly in the Bible. You know, we know that he is one of the great five men of the Old Testament. The Lord commends for being those that could save others besides just themselves because of their righteousness. And, of course, the New Testament commends Noah greatly. He's in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11 as one of those great men who stood faithfully and righteously for God. What can we learn from Noah? We can learn that despite the odds... You and God are a majority, and who cares about the rest? From that, we can learn that despite the wickedness around us, we can still live righteously and walk with God, despite what everyone else is doing. I hope that we will be convicted and challenged by the life of Noah, that we can stand against all other people and be the only one and please God well in our generation.
Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. Amen. And all the people saw it. They fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they took them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. That's why Micaiah only had 400 to deal with. There were 850. 450 of Baal, 400 of the groves. Micaiah had somebody prepare the way for him, so he only had 400 to deal with. Brethren, Elijah... This great man is listed to us in the book of James as an example of prayer. Now, that's not what I want to use him for. Why did he do all this? I actually skipped a verse that tells us exactly why he did all this. Preparing the altar, delsing it with water, making it look impossible so that God could look great. He said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel... Let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that, thy am, that, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Amen. Brethren, can we live our lives so that when great things come about in our lives, when we stand boldly before others, uncompromisingly, doing righteously, and great things are done in our life, we can turn to them and say, it's not me. It's my Lord Jesus Christ. Any good in my life, any blessing that I have is from Him. Brethren, that's how we can be like Elijah. Galatians chapter 2, I'm going to read... I think most of you are very familiar with this part of the Word of God. It says here in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew himself, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. Here we get two verbs with one stone. Yes, Here's the Apostle Paul who is very courageous, right. very bold, who stood for something that we hold very dear to. The church in his very early infant state could very well have been corrupted at the very start right. if it wasn't for the Apostle Paul. Amen. Here with Peter, here's Peter, who's also a very great apostle. And we all love Peter. And our heart kind of goes out for Peter in this part of the Word of God. Right. We don't really blame him too much because we could too. But you know, the fear of man, it brings a snare. And here, when Peter was in Antioch, when, the Jew, when those Jews in Jerusalem who believe, who were of the circumcision, yet who want to mix a little bit of works with their faith in Christ, when they came down, before they came down, Peter ate with them. He, he acted as though he was one of them. But when they came down, he jumped on the other side of the fence. Right. And then he wanted to start commanding them to live as the Jews lived. But Paul... 
Paul quickly corrected that. Amen. You know, I'm thankful that he did. Yeah. There's a lot of lessons to be learned here. First of all, here's a brother that he corrected. Right. Yes. You know, that's hard. Yes. You know, I run a company. I run men. It's very easy for me. I've seen it in my own self. Sometimes I have to stop myself. It's easy for me to get on someone I don't like as much as I do someone else. You say, can you do that? Yeah, I can. You know, but if I like someone, I kind of back off a little bit. I might see him doing the same thing. But Paul didn't back off from Peter. You know he loved Peter, but he loved the truth when he loved Peter. He didn't fear Peter. Um, and I'm very thankful that he did that because I'm thankful by him doing that, what we have today. If you want to, I'm not going to read, I won't keep it two minutes like the pastor said. But if you want to hear his rebuke, let me just read a little bit of it. I love the words. It's a very tender rebuke. And obviously Peter took it well. If you go read Second Peter chapter, the last chapter in Second right, Peter, yes. he called him yes. the beloved Paul. Good, Good. When I saw that they walked not uprightly, according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all. It wasn't a closed door rebuke. He rebuked him publicly. If thou being a Jew liveth after the manner, uh, being a Jew liveth after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as to the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as to the Jews? And we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, listen to this rebuke. I love it. I'm, I'm thankful that God recorded it for us, and it's preserved in the Word of God. Amen. Galatians is my favorite book. This is my favorite verse in all the Word of God. I'm glad it's recorded the very words that was spoken to Peter. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Amen. Even we have believed in, Christ, in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the, the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Amen. That's where we stand. And I'm thankful we stand there. Because there was a man who stood for the truth, who saw a little bit of... Corruption, a little bit of leaven coming in. He stopped it in his early state. Amen. Thank God for Paul. Amen. I want to talk to you about a very courageous young man by the name of Elihu, the son of Barakal. If you will, turn to Job chapter 32. We all know the story of Job and how uh, the Lord let Satan touch everything that Job had, even his health and the dire circumstances that Job was under. Um, three of his close friends came to give their opinion of why God would do this. And after 30 chapters of all of them giving their advice to Job, which wasn't good advice at all, uh, a, little, a young man sitting in a corner gave his opinion. Amen. I'm going to read uh, 6 through 8. And Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, answered and said, I am young, and you are very old. Wherefore I was afraid, and durst not show you mine opinion. I said, they should speak in multitude of years to teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Amen. The Lord has given us much understanding, and we should um, apply it in this way. How, how can we apply it? If you're sitting around the water cooler and you hear someone say, how could God dare do that? How could God send a tsunami to kill thousands of people? We must answer like Elihu did and say, God is greater than man. Amen. Amen. Number 572. 
Let's all stand up as we sing number 572 before we continue. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before, Christ the royal master leads against the foe, forward into Christ the 
Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The next five, please come in this order. David Crosby. Is it David Crosby or David Taylor? First of all. No, you're Jeremiah? Okay. David Crosby. Yeah. Matthew Eastland. Daniel Jones. Lewis Grimm. And then Chad. In that order. I've got a compromiser for you tonight to hear about for a minute. I want to talk about Saul, the first king of Israel, and his compromise that cost him dearly. Um, The the things that are written beforehand were written for our learning. So this is a true story that God put in the Bible for our learning. Forget with me for just a minute. Um, The Saul in his later years that chased our brother David around and tried to kill him as often as he could whenever the Lord sent an evil spirit. Forget that one for a minute. Remember with me to about an eight-foot-tall young man who was very timid, who the Lord put a very timid spirit in. Um, Let me tell you what he had to say when Samuel met him and anointed him to be the first king of Israel. Uh, 1 Samuel 9.21, and I'll read it to you. And Saul answered and said, Am not I a Benjaminite? Of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Wherefore then speakest thou so to me? <clears throat> Doesn't that sound like David? Yeah, yeah. When he went and uh, met Saul after killing Goliath? Mm-hmm. Wow. But Saul, but Saul was a timid man, and he was scared of people. And he compromised. Um, the first one I want to remind you of is when... A group of Philistines, when a group of, <clears throat> got my notes backwards, I'm sorry. No, the, the Lord gave him a new heart when a uh, group of Ammonites came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And everyone was scared and running around and they, got, they had seven days to figure out if they all wanted to lose their right eye or not and be uh, servants to the Ammonites. And you know, you know the story. He grabbed a team of oxen, hacked them up into 12 pieces and sent them throughout the coasts of Israel and he had a standing army like that. So the Lord gave him, had mercy on him and gave him a new heart. But he was timid and he, he was scared of people. He compromised. Um, there was a time when Samuel was going to meet him to make an offering and Samuel said, wait seven days. I'm going to be there, and we'll make an offering to the Lord. He couldn't wait. He couldn't wait. He had to do it himself. He said he told Samuel when he did show up that I forced myself, mm-hmm. but that was a sin. Yes. And the Lord counted it against him. Yes. And, of course, Agag and the Amalekites. The Lord told uh, Saul to cut them off utterly, man, woman, beast, child, everything, wipe them out. And he could not do that because the people wanted to take the best of everything for themselves to make an offering to the Lord. Now, they were greedy. But I want you to remember Saul as a young man who was timid and who was scared, who could not stand for what was right, could not stand for the Lord, could not shut his own personal feelings down, could not override the people that he was over, an eight-foot guy, 
um, that, that he was over them, could not shut him down. And the Lord judged him for that severely, ripped the um, throne from him, and gave it to a better man who had a heart like the Lord's. Right. Amen. Thank you. First Kings chapter 12. I'm going to talk to you about another compromiser. Think of a man who had everything. He really had everything. He was in charge of the most powerful kingdom in his region in that day. He had a father and a grandfather who were legends in their own time, who are known throughout the common world today as people to be remembered, who are thought of by people in the world. He had great wealth. He had great power and prestige. He had a host of wise men attending him, and he had a father who gave him knowledge. And we probably don't even think about him much. The only way we actually know him in most cases is because of the failure that I'm going to talk to you about tonight, how he compromised. His name is Rehoboam. The people of Israel came to him after his father's death and asked him, please, king, will you lighten the load on us a little bit because we're kind of being taxed a lot because his father had taxed them a lot. And so he went to his father's wise men. And King Rehoboam consulted with the old men that stood before Solomon his father while he yet lived and said, how do ye advise that I may answer this people? Verse 7, And they spake unto him, saying, If thou wilt be a servant unto this people this day, and wilt serve them, and answer them, and speak good words to them, then they will be thy servants forever. He got good advice from wise men, who served his father, who was a wise man. But he forsook the counsel of the old men, which they had given him, and consulted with the young men that were grown up with him, and which stood before him. He gave in to peer pressure. He had a bunch of friends. Maybe they were princes. Maybe they were just friends that he made in the palace. But he hearkened to his friends. He didn't listen to wisdom. And what happened because of it? I'm going to skip down to verse 19. So Israel rebelled against the house of David unto this day. We know him mostly because the kingdom was split against him. Under his rulership, 12... Ten of the twelve tribes walked away and said, we don't need you. He failed. Now, you may ask, how is this supposed to apply to me? I'm not a king. Most of us aren't even managers or rulers. Those of us who are, we can apply this a little bit better. But what was the entire problem with this? It was within his right to tax. It was within his right to tax as much as he wanted. What was the problem? He didn't show mercy. His people were asking him kindly and with respect to be merciful to them to make it a little bit easier on them. And he said, I'm going to crush you. Are we showing mercy? To those of us who are managers, who are rulers in some form, fathers, mothers, over your children, any of us, because really we all have someone that we can be over in some way, a smaller child, the children that we see around us, those who work with us or for us, are we merciful to them? Do we show them kindness? Or do we try and increase the workload? Do we try and get more out of them, make ourselves look better because we're squeezing a little bit more, getting better for the company, getting better for ourselves? It's better to have mercy than sacrifice, as God said. And it's better to have mercy for those around us, as is shown in this case. We could take the wisdom that we heard from those wise counselors tonight, and we could make it easier for others. And we could be kind, and they would serve us forever. Or we could follow what Rehoboam did, and we could have people rebel against us. I'd like to talk about a compromiser. Please turn with me to John 12, 
Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, this, uh, excuse me, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Amen. In these verses, we see that the uh, rulers of the synagogue were trying to be accepted by the Philistines, lest they should be kicked out of the synagogue. How, this, how does this apply to us? We should not be, we should not obey peer pressure. And we should not be secret agents for the Lord. Um, I would like to talk tonight about a man that stood with courage in his in like physically in the spiritual courage his name is Daniel he was a captive in a foreign land a eunuch and when he first went there it shows him physically having courage it says in Daniel chapter 1 verse 8 but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat nor with the wine which he drank therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself with all those other men there all the other people that probably went along with the king's rations he didn't he decided not to defile himself and he purposely that in his heart and I think that would you know help us to remember that because not to defile ourselves with you know boys getting piercings or having long hair or women you know dressing modestly and it also shows his spiritualness in chapter 6, verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went to his house, and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed, and gave thanks before his God, and he did after time, before time. Because after King Darius had signed the decree, he didn't care. He stayed faithful to God, and he and all, against all that other pressure that he would have had, he stayed faithful and always prayed. You know, not in a closet hiding, but with his windows opened upon his knees three times a day. And I think that should show us, you know, not to be scared in public. You know, like our pastor has said many times, are you afraid to pray when you're at restaurants? You know, not just say really, really fast and get it over with. You know, so that you don't look weird or anything. And at schools or businesses, not, you know, not just going along with the flow, but if someone, like, says something wrong, like, reproving them, even at church. And I think that should just prove us to be, you know, like Daniel just said, not just keep our spirituality and our righteousness hid away, but to, like, put it out and show God. Amen. I think all, all sin is destructive, but there seems to be one sin that if you want to see it destroy more lives than almost any other sin, it's the sin of 
marrying the wrong person. And it's a sin because God tells us not to do it. And you see how it took down the wisest man that ever lived. And we see it in our own society among us today. How you marry the wrong person and it destroys a man or destroys a woman. And in Nehemiah 13, Nehemiah had a small problem with with the Jews. And Nehemiah wanted a pure body for God. And this is what it says, starting in verse 23. In those days also saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Amnon, and of Moab. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod, and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. And I contended with them, and cursed them, and smote certain of them, and plucked off their hair, and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons, or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like him, who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin. Shall we then hearken unto you to do all this great evil? to transgress against our God and marrying strange wives. Amen. Amen. Nehemiah wasn't going to do the Eli method and sit back and just tell them they shouldn't do something. He brought it to physical violence. Yes. And I don't know if that's what it takes today, but I guess I'm talking to people my age and to dads and to grandfathers. Are we going to stand up when somebody in here wants to go after somebody from the land? children of this world are we are are people my age going to not go after children of this world and marry people that love god and are we going to put a stop to that in this church that is one area where we can stand up and be courageous for god number one Number one.
Amen. Amen. I do have the sweet spot. Chris Carnell, Orville, Dave Taylor, Jonathan Carnell, and then Jonathan Crosby. Two minutes. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. That is Acts chapter 6, verse 3. And a man who fit that description in the church of Jerusalem was Stephen. He was... A man of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and full of wisdom. The fact that Stephen had this reputation shows that he was letting his light shine before men, even as just a church member in Jerusalem. Because of that reputation he had, he was chosen as one of the deacons for that church. He was an unusual deacon in that he performed miracles and wonders. He publicly taught that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law and disputed with foreign Jews. The Jews falsely accused him of speaking blasphemy against Moses and against God. And at his trial, instead of compromising or revising what he believed, he went even further and correctly accused the Jews' fathers of persecuting and murdering all the prophets. And he accused the current Jewish leadership sitting right in front of him of murdering Jesus Christ. They responded by stoning him. What can we learn from his example? We should make every effort to have a reputation like Stephen's, to be honest, full of the Holy Ghost, and wise. That's letting our light shine before men. Stephen was like salt in its purgative effects when he contended with the foreign Jews. These guys were not just other Jews. Some of them were from Alexandria, which was a center of learning. Um, these were educated people. Uh, he, he, he took them on openly, proving that Jesus was Christ. And they could not resist his spirit or his wisdom. Now, he could have been quiet about what he believed and talked only with his family or with other members of the Jerusalem church. Instead, he was taking the lead, publicly defending the gospel of yes. Jesus Christ, right. which was new. This took courage because the Jews were more numerous than the Christians, and also they had political power. From this we can learn that sometimes, not every time, but sometimes, in order to be salt and light, we must defend the gospel to those that totally disagree with it. Um, Another thing we can learn is that, uh, like Stephen, we are also in a minority in how we understand the Bible. These Jews were using the Old Testament, and so was Stephen, but they had a very different understanding of what it meant and who the fulfillment was. Um, uh, We run into people all the time who have the same Bible we do but believe a completely different thing about what it says. Um, Unlike Stephen's audience, uh, many of whom were devil-possessed, 
according to Jesus Christ, testi- testimony of that generation of Jews, yes. um, unlike his audience, some of the people that we encounter are sincere seekers of Jesus Christ who could benefit if we shared a little bit of what God has blessed yes. us with. And I want to exhort each of us to be like Stephen and to look for those opportunities to share the truth with others rather than hiding our candle under a bushel. Amen. I'm going to do things a little differently than what some others have. I'm going to start with this application. What if you were told by your superiors to do something wrong, something illegal? What if you were just told to go along with it, just don't make any noise about it? I'm not giving a hypothetical example. Things have happened many times in many places, in corporations, in politics, even recently. But the example I am going to give is from the Bible and about a man who did not compromise, who did not go along, despite the fact that he knew the man in question and that he even may have been close to that man in some ways. Mark chapter 6. I'll start with verse 20 to give you a little background. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and an holy, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. So Herod, as you can hear, was familiar with John, John the Baptist, the one I am talking about. But John had something to say to Herod. Herod had married his brother Philip's wife, and John the Baptist had told him, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Verse 18. Furthermore, John the Baptist was standing against a number of other evil things Herod had done, as Luke 3.19 states, that Herod had done many other evil things that John had contended with him with. John the Baptist did not compromise. He did not back down no matter if Herod was authority. And he paid the price for it. He lost his head. The question is, would we be willing to do something similar? If we were told by an authority to do something wrong, we might lose our jobs. We might be attacked. We might even be punished. Would we be willing to stand and say, thou shalt not have thy father's wife? I'm going to talk about a little bit about Jeremiah. He had a rather tough job. He was a prophet, one of the prophets that God used when he was going to utterly destroy Jerusalem and the people for their wickedness and their rebellion against God. And he came to Jeremiah and he told him that before he was ever conceived or born, God had chosen him to use him. And I think that would be an encouragement to him considering the job that he had ahead of him. But still, when, you, when you're not only told, you know, rebuke the people, but as a sidelight, they ain't going to listen to you. Right. Yeah. So he had a really tough job. In verse, chapter 1, verse 17, 
the Lord encouraged them. He says, Therefore, gird up thy loins and arise and speak unto them all that I command thee. Be not dismayed by, at their faces, lest I confound thee before them. For behold, I have made thee this day a defended city, an iron pillar, and brazen walls against the whole land. And this is, listen, listen to the list of people that he's going to be going against. Against the whole land, against kings of Judah, against the priests thereof, the ones who are the princes thereof, against the priests, the ones who are supposed to be godly and setting the example, and against the people of the land. And here's where he tells them, And they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to deliver thee. Amen. And I'm sure he recalled that promise of the Lord many times as he yeah. went through what he went through. But he was willing to do what God said, to preach, do everything that God told him to do, rebuke the nation over and over and over again. Uh, what happened to him? Well, we come up to chapter 38, and some of these princes that God said would fight against him, verse 4, chapter 38, verse 4, it says, Therefore the princes said unto the king, We beseech thee, let this man be put to death. For thus he weakeneth the hands of the men of war that re remain in the city, and the hands of all the people, in speaking such words unto them. For this man speaketh not the welfare not the welfare of, the, of this people, but the hurt. Then Zedekiah the king said, Behold, he is in your hand. Then they took Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon. And then it goes on to describe how they actually lowered him down on a rope, and it said there was no water in the dungeon, and he sunk in the mire. So here he is in the mire in this prison for simply preaching the word of the Lord. But he continued to preach the word of the Amen. Lord in spite of all that. And he still trusted in the Lord. Amen. And that's something that we should do. You know, all these, most of the people that we've heard of tonight have high offices. You know, they're in a pretty significant place. And we don't face the types of people that they face, but we should still even have more courage than they did. Uh, did God deliver him? Well, we go to verse or chapter 39, and it describes this king that allowed him to be lowered into the dungeon, Zedekiah. Zedekiah was taken captive the way Jeremiah had said he would. The last thing he saw was all of his sons executed before him. Many of the nobles were killed, and he saw you know, the nation led away captive. But then what happened to Jeremiah? Verse 11, it says, Now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave charge concerning Jeremiah, to Nebuzardan, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him, cut off his head, no, take him and look well to him, and do no harm, but do unto him even as he shall say unto thee. Amen. The Lord kept his promise. And, you know, in reading this, there's an also, another sideline that, that goes along that, you know, we may not be able to associate ourselves with somebody as great as, as Jeremiah, but when Jeremiah was lowered into the dungeon there was a eunuch right. that was a friend of Jeremiah obviously he was a righteous man and he went to the king who really didn't want to hurt Jeremiah that much but the princes came to him and he, he bowed to their requests he goes to the king behind these princes back and says Jeremiah or Zedekiah he'll probably die because there's, there's no bread he'll just die in the dungeon and the king allows this eunuch to take men and, and to release Jeremiah from this dungeon. And it's interesting to know what the Lord 
says about this eunuch. It says, Go and speak to Ebed-Malak, the Ethiopian, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring my words upon this city for evil and not for good, and they shall, and they shall be accomplished in that day before thee. But I will deliver thee in that day, saith the Lord, and thou shalt not be given unto the hand of the men of whom thou art afraid. For I will surely deliver thee, and thou shalt not fall by the sword, but thy life shall be a prey unto thee, because thou hast put thy trust in me, saith the Lord. Amen. So if we can't associate with the great prophet, how about a Ethiopian eunuch that stood up for that prophet and, and went behind the backs of princes? Amen. You're in the right book. Just uh, turn over to chapter 35. <clears throat> I'm going to tell you about uh, one of Jeremiah's object lessons. Let me ask you a couple questions real quick. Um, is it a sin to drink alcohol? No. Mm. Uh, is it a sin to live in a house? No. no. Um, is it a sin to hold your girlfriend's hand? I don't know. Go ask your parents. Um, this is my point here. We're gonna we're gonna read about this. Uh, yes. <laughs> what? Good job. This uh this lesson here is about Jonadab's descendants. Um, Jonadab was a great man. He was one of Jehu's friends, um, and they did a lot of good things together, including the. Uh, the uh, righteous murders of these people that were talked about earlier. Um, <clears throat> he told his children that they were never to live in a house. They were always to dwell in tents. And uh, they were never to drink any alcohol. That was just rules that he made for them. It wasn't rules God made. Right. These are rules that um, Jonadab made for his children. And... Uh, as an object lesson to show how disobedient the children of Israel were, um, God told Jeremiah to go find all the Rechabites, which were um, some of which were Jonadab's children, because Jonadab was the son of Rechab. Um, so Jeremiah goes and finds all of them, brings them to the house of the Lord, and sits them down and puts wine in front of them with cups and glasses and everything. He says, drink wine. And uh, if you want to follow along with me, uh, this was their reaction. Now, this was a prophet of God instructing them to do this. Uh, and God is higher than Jonadab, their father. Um, but listen to their response. And what should be your response when faced, especially you children, when faced with a choice to either obey your parents, even though it may not be a specific law of God, or bow to the pressure of your friends, or maybe just not even in front of them, a, a temptation that you have just personally by yourself. Listen to their reaction here. <clears throat> but they said, in response to this command of Jeremiah to drink wine, We will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, Ye shall drink no wine, neither ye nor your sons forever. Neither shall ye build house, nor sow seed, nor plant vineyards, nor have any. But all your days ye shall dwell in tents, that ye may live many days in the land where ye be strangers. Thus have we obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, and all that he hath charged us, to drink no wine all our days, we, our wives, 
our sons nor our daughters, nor to build houses for us to dwell in. Neither have we vineyard, nor field, nor seed, but we have dwelt in tents, and have obeyed, and done according to all that Jonadab our father commanded us. This is this should be our response. This should be your response. When you're faced with any situation where, um, you know, like for for example, is the moderate use of tobacco products wrong? No. Um, what if your what if your parents say it's wrong? For you, then it's wrong. It's that simple. What if what if you didn't ask your parents and they haven't said specifically, but you know that if you asked them, they would say no. Then it's wrong. It is very simple, and you can deceive yourself into thinking that just because your parents may not have said something specifically that you can't do, but you know if you went and asked them, they'd say, forget about it, then um, you need to have this same response. You're not going to do it. Uh, there's very many examples that this can apply to. Like I, I told you the example of um, holding your girlfriend's hand. That, I think that's a good one because, you know, you can justify it. The Bible doesn't say you can't hold your girlfriend's hand. But would you even consider going and asking her dad or your dad? Uh, probably not. So, you know, don't even consider it as an option. Um, movies, another great example. Um, many examples like that. We need to take this example of uh, commands that may not be in the Bible that our parents enforce right. and apply them to ourselves as well and hold to them just like we would have if it was the Word of God Himself. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Amen. My example tonight is a man, a very courageous man, who didn't have to stand against a multitude. He had to stand against something that I think is much worse, and that's a woman who grabbed him and offered her body to him, and he fled. And that man is Joseph. If you'd like, you can turn to Genesis 39, where the story is found. So far, um, Joseph's brothers sold him to the Ishmaelites. The Ishmaelites went down to Egypt, and Potiphar, a captain of the guard, uh, bought Joseph, and the Lord just started blessing Joseph. He blessed everything he touched. And Potiphar saw this and put Joseph at the the overseer of his house and in charge of everything he had. Potiphar didn't know what he had. He knew what he ate, and that's about it. And he kept nothing from him. And Joseph knew that except for his wife. And in verse, I'll read verse 7 through 12. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused, and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wadeth not what is with me in this house, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Amen. And it came to pass, as she spake to Joseph day by day, that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was none of the men of the house there within. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment with, in her hand and fled and got him out. Amen. Now we might not have a woman grabbing us by the garment, but what do we have? We have television, we have movies, radio, friends, that we can, we need to watch, watch what we watch, watch our friends, watch what we say. And when I think about Joseph, how did Joseph end up 
after he went to jail, yes, he went to jail, but what did the Lord do? The Lord continued to bless him. He went to the top of the jail, and then he, he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, and then he became second in, in all of Egypt. And at first, if Pharaoh wasn't in the throne. So what do we get if we would stand for the Lord and do what he wants us to? Amen. Amen. I love all you people. I love all you men. Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. Tonight was wonderful. I'm going to cut it off because the other six that are remaining, next Sunday night, and for those of you that are bold, you can dip in the pot again and participate next Sunday night with another one if you wish. But I want to read a verse to you from 1 John chapter 2 and verse 13. 1 John 2.13 I write unto you fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you little children, because ye have known the Father. I have written unto you fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you. And ye have overcome the wicked one. Praise the Lord that in this church there are fathers, there are young men, and there are children. And all of you just got to see all three categories of spiritual experience and spiritual knowledge. Get up here and testify from the word of God about courage or compromise. And it was precious. Tim has listened to our tapes for 19 years including all the tapes when you young men get up here. I didn't tell you all of his email to me this afternoon, but he listened to two elders of a Reformed Baptist church, and he said anyone in that church above Stephen Eastland Jr., including from Stephen Eastland Jr. up, could have whipped what he heard this day in that church in St. Louis. And I praise God for what just came out of this pulpit from all you young men, Older men and very young men. You, it was all thrilling. I've, you know, I'd like to jump on some of these and just point out the things that you said that were excellent. You made excellent applications. You drew important parts out of each illustration to our knowledge and to our sight so that we would see it and know exactly what we could apply from it from the Lord about being courageous or being a compromiser. There's six of you left that are on this list. Please forgive me if it will cause you a week of fear. Please thank me if it will cause you a week of relief. And I'll let others who want to participate dip in the pot for next Sunday evening, and we'll do this again. I commend each of you. I saw your notes. I heard the organization. I'm thankful for a church like this. I'm thankful for young men, and I hope that all of us And all of you that said those things will live up to them. And young ladies, some of you are married to some great men. Some of you are wishing you were married to some great men. And some of you girls that aren't thinking about getting married yet, some great men spoke tonight. It's it's wonderful, and I thank the Lord for it. I'm thankful for Tim's testimony from so far away, knowing what is here in Greenville. And may the Lord continue to bless us to grow in the knowledge of his word. May there be many Elihu's. May there be many Josephs. May there be some old men as faithful as Paul that would rebuke even a brother to keep the purity of the gospel.
What a pleasure. What a joy to your pastor. May we let our light so shine this week without fear of men, fear of a multitude, fear of anything, fear of giants. And we make giants up all the time that we think are impossible to overcome. May the Lord bless us to be courageous in all that we do this week.